What is a fouet? A fouet is a small bread cooked in uh, in a wood-fired oven, uh, 99.9% of the time. It's a very thin dough. Uh, it's much like a Lebanese bread or a pita bread. Bonjour, this is Fabulously Delicious, the podcast that's all about delicious French food and the people that love it, cook it, produce it, talk, write and photograph it. We covered French bread in our second episode of Fabulously Delicious with the wonderful Katie Quinn, but today we are going to talk about a little-known flatbread that is very popular in the southwest of France, the fouille. Who better to teach us about the fouille than someone who has gone from pizza making to wood-fired bread making? Someone we will learn is no stranger to moving around the globe, finding his passion in food, then the master of all things, the fouille. Vince Gucci. Vince, welcome to Fabulously Delicious. Thank you, Andrew. It's really a pleasure to be here. Thank you for coming on. Vince, you were actually born in Italy, but grew up in Australia. At what age did you move to Australia? Three and a half years old I was when uh, they moved to Australia. Do you remember anything about No, I remember everything that my parents told me about it because we passed through Cairo uh, before we came to uh, to Australia. So we spent two years in Cairo and then uh, and then here because my father had to get up enough money to pay for the the tickets at the time. Right. Why did they uh, immigrate to Australia? Well, they had the choice to immigrate to Canada or Australia. We had they applied for both uh, visas. Uh, The Australian one came through, and it was also my mother who wanted very much to be in a warmer weather than uh, the minus 30 that can get to in uh, Quebec at some times. Of course, yes. It would be a bit cold there in Canada as opposed to a sunny Australia. And whereabouts in Australia did they end up settling? We ended up in in the inner city city suburbs of Sydney. Uh, The first place we bought, I think, was in uh, Dremoyne, actually. We were we, we were just the last wave of the great Italian uh, migration from uh, from the south of Italy, which were mostly people from the south because they all all they went north uh, to Italy, which was pretty racist at the time. Uh, or they went to Australia or England or America. My mother's father's family, they changed their name from Chicuto to Curtis. Did your family do the same? No, it was a thing uh, with, with the Greeks and the Italians that actually, I know a lot of Greeks that are named Morris, for example, and it's not at all a Greek name. Uh, and they all obtained, in fact, the name Morris and the, the government had to sort of put a stop to it because we had too many Greek Morrises that actually weren't related. Uh, the Italians did that a lot, but not as much as the Greeks did. Yeah. As a little alone, a little Italian boy then growing up in uh, Australia, what was that experience like? Well, the first—I imagine the first couple of months was difficult. Which all I remember about that is the first day at school, when my teacher saw my my name, it was Vincenzo, and she said, "Oh no, 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 that won't do. I can't even pronounce that. We'll shorten that to Vin." Right. Uh, which I was quite happy about because I don't like Vincenzo personally, but uh, yeah, or it shortens to Enzo in uh, in Italian, actually. A lot of immigrants talk about how they go to school and they've got the di- different lunchbox to everybody else. Uh, did you have that same experience? Yeah, I did. But as you know, well, no, Australia is a big melting pot. The school that I went to, which is at Dremoyne, uh, there were so many Italians, so many Greeks, so many Lebanese. It was quite normal. So we weren't look. It was quite... It was more different watching the Australians eat their cut sandwiches with uh, their ham and butter in there. Uh, that that was quite a laugh for everyone. More than the, more than the other way around because it's so it's so multicultural. Were your parents actually in the food industry? Uh, no. Aside from my mother being a fantastic cook, like all Italian mothers are. Other than that, no. She just loved cooking. I've all, I was always next to my mum, and I started cooking with her from an early age. So I'd, I'd help her. 
and I learned all her recipes practically, practically by heart. Uh, so that's what was great about cooking like that. Yeah, fabulous. Your parents, did they ever go back to Italy? They went back for visits and uh, just about every every year, every two years later on. And then in 87, 88, they went back for good. The idea to go to Australia was, or you go to settle down or you go to become rich. Right, okay. And so they, they did both? They did both, actually. <laughs> yeah, they, they, my, my dad we did really well in real estate and uh, he bought a lot of real estate and in the end sold it all and uh, went back a happy man. Yeah. Did they enjoy that experience of going back to Italy then or had it changed for them? No, I don't think they enjoyed it. It's They come from a very big family, both of them, so eight and 12 kids on both sides. That's 20 brothers and sisters. Uh, we were the family that left. Uh, we were the ones that left. The rest of them, no one moved overseas out of all the other all the other brothers and sisters. We were the only ones. We were the only ones that shunned the circus life, and that's another story. And with that, we were sort of, when they went back, it was sort of, ah, oh, right. Now you want to come back. Now you want to stay in contact. Now you want to see everyone. When we always did. But that's but that's a lot of immigrants, I think, pass through that, especially with big families. So you mentioned that your family were involved in the circus. Yes, from my father's side, my grandfather was uh, a showman, as, as he used to put it, and he was, in fact. And he used to, he started busking on the streets in the, in the early 20s, 1920s, which was quite different at that time. On, not many people did that in Italy. It was quite badly looked at. He it lo- it looked like a hobo. And from there, he got his family into it on the street. Then they bought a tent, literally. And from that, they joined some of the biggest circuses in, circuses in, uh, in Italy. So what was your father's role in the circus? Uh, my father threw knives, uh, axes, whips, acrobats. He also played the drums when the, when the drummer was sick. Um, when you're in a circus, you have to be able to do, well, at the time, you had to be able to do at least three acts. No matter how different or the same, similar they were, you have to be able to do three acts. Otherwise, you're useless. So I used to be afraid of my mother's feather duster. I can imagine if your dad throwing knives for a living, you'd um, you'd definitely not want to get him upset. It's a matter of trust. <laughs> and my father is a very, he's a very, very nervous person, a very edgy person. But when you put a knife or a whip in his hand, it's I've never seen him just change. Very concentrated. Uh, yeah. What would be the fondest thing that you remember your mother made for you? My mother never made sweets, never made anything sweet. I think the closest she ever got to was something, and I love sweets, sweet stuff. But everything, I can't really put my finger on one dish that I love from my mum because there's not anything that I don't like. Uh, so it's, when you ask me the, the, my favourite dish, I really, I couldn't. I couldn't. I, I'd, I'd lie if I said I had a favourite dish from, from all the repertoire of my mum's cooking. So you actually moved then back to Europe. So where did you end up when you moved back to Europe? I went back for curiosity for, because I had uh, quit my job in Australia and I was taking a three or four month break and I decided to, uh, and I'd also broken up in a relationship which sort of added to my wanting to get out a bit. And go back to this country that, where I came from that I re- knew very, very little of. And so I went back to Catania. And so were your parents there at the same time? My mother was in, they'd, they'd split up at the time and my mother was in Sicily and my father was in Sardinia where he was born. So I come from both islands, in fact. Okay. And so what did you end up doing there? Well, as soon as I got to Catania, I worked in a copper foundry. 
uh, did that for four years and then worked at uh, a fast food outlet on the in American naval base. Uh, from there, I got a job as a commune in a small family restaurant run by a grandmother and that just exploded my love for the kitchens and watching this person cook exactly like my mum used to cook with the same, no idea how much, how much of that weighs or how much of that I put in there. No point asking for a recipe because she wouldn't have a clue. She communicated a lot of what she did. It was up to me to grasp quantities and that, and her quantities were practically her hand. And I just look at how much she used and then try and transfer that into weight because I work by weights. I haven't, I haven't got, I haven't got what they've got. Uh, Unless I know a dish and I do it off by heart, that's another thing. And so this would be your first foray in the kitchen. What was the first thing that they had you doing? This is quite amazing. My first thing that I did, my first day that I'll never forget, I opened by hand with a pair of scissors more than 3,000 sea urchins. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, the <laughs> black ones yeah. are about yeah. 12 centimetres in diameter with the spines and about seven or eight without. She asked me what I wanted to do. She, I had the choice of opening the sea urchins or opening oysters. Opening oysters is a li- bit more difficult when you've never done or have done very little you know, opening a sea urchin. And the risk of not being able to do the job, I chose the sea urchin. So it was a lot longer. It took me practically all day. You ended up in Naples. What is it like to live in a place like Naples? Naples is an Naples. Naples is a circus. It's an adventure. It's the people are beautiful. It's dangerous. It's fascinating. It's 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 everything. Naples. It's such a beautiful city. Uh, I went there because I was I replied to a paper that asked for someone who wanted to do six months in a pizza university. Quote unquote. Uh, which I jumped at because I thought, wow, the the the, the capital of, of pizzas in the world uh, in a pizza university, love it. And in fact, it was in someone's house, but it was quite quite well done. Because Naples is the home of pizza, is that right? So they say. So they say it is. Well, that's that. That's where the pizza, the recognised pizza, the simple pizza was made. So you said that you learnt from the old generation. Do you think that's really important, especially these days, learning from the older generation? There's a there's a show on YouTube that I love, um, the Italian grandmas cooking pasta. It's really really popular. Do you think it's really important for us to learn from older generations? It's very important to learn from older generations, but we don't because if you're going to work in practically any kitchen in France or Maybe not in Italy, but in just about any kitchen in France, it's a modern kitchen and it's run the modern way, uh, most of them. So you, it's hard to pick up from the old generation because they're usually not at the ovens. They're not, at the, not, not in front of the stove. So mentioning France, is there a rivalry, do you think, in regards to food between France and Italy? It's a matter of, I, I suppose in the end it would boil down to taste, but the rivalry is that the French food is more let's use the word posh, than the Italian food, uh, even though there is a lot of poor food now in the, in the menus in France. The poor food in Italy is what rocks. Everything that they used to throw away, the Italians used to cook with, and with that they've made their specialties. Your, your bolognese is, used to be just old meats that they didn't, didn't know what to do with, and all that was thrown in a soup. they get their tomato sauce that was always handy, except in summer, and it was fantastic. You ended up back in. You ended up in France, not back in France. You ended up in France. Um, how did that come about? Well, like a lot of us, end up in France. If it's not for the love of France, it's just for the love. Don't I met a woman, 
in uh, in in Italy. She asked, she asked me, "Do you what do you feel like going back to France or going to France? I'd love to go back." And I said, "Yeah, why not? I learned, I've learned Italian. Why not? I'd probably learn French as well." And there it was. You bought a food truck, is that right? When you were when you moved to France, I bought a food truck in Nantes because that's where I, where I ended up. Uh, beautiful city, absolutely wonderful. Uh, young, vibrant, clean uh, city that, that moves. It's, it's a lot of culture. Uh, the music industry is fantastic. Um, and the pizzas sell incredibly well. Also, the French are the biggest pizza eaters in the world per capita. Right. It's, uh, they, they, no one eats as many pizzas as the French do. Does that mean you, you were driving around with the wood-burning fire in the back of the truck? It wasn't wood-burned. Uh, I, I had a gas uh, oven. I would have liked a wood burner that involves a lot more equipment. You have to lug around all your wood with you, etc. It's not always easy, depending on the truck you've got. But I went for that because I found a good truck which suited my needs. And I went from suburbs to suburbs where I was able to put because you have to get permission to, to park your truck and, and sell pizzas. Australia called you back again, but it, uh, it wasn't the same experience when you went back to Australia. Is that right? No, I was, uh, I was a fish in a water I shouldn't have been in uh, in Australia. It was, it was a fish in water. Everything was fine. It was my country as far as I'm concerned. I've always been concerned. But when I got there, I'd changed. Australia had changed as well, and those two things just didn't click well. And I stayed eight years to give it a go. I thought I want to make Australia home again. This is where I want to be. I had my daughter there. I had a good job. Um, and I thought, yeah, why not? And it just didn't happen. Couldn't do it. You are listening to Fabulously Delicious, the podcast that's all about French food and the wonderful, fabulous people that make it, cook it, love it, and eat it. I'm Andrew Pryor. My motto in life is, whatever you do, you should do it fabulously. And if you are a wonderful business that supports France in some way, be it tourism, food, then contact me uh, for sponsorship opportunities of Fabulously Delicious. We're open and looking for anybody that'd like to place an ad here, so to speak, to promote or to let people know how fabulous you are. Now, let's get back to Vince Cuey and everything about the fui. That's where we start with the fui. So am I pronouncing that right? It's a fui? No, you're t- pronouncing it terribly, <laughs> very terribly. Terribly incorrect. There's my it's French for incorrect. you. It's called fui. Yeah. Fui. 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 Yeah. Okay, look, we'll just have to start the podcast all over again and oh, go back. Again. Okay. Oh, Bonjour. Welcome to Fabulously Delicious. Today it's all about the fui. Exactly. I know I'm going to say this wrong throughout the episode now because it's one of those times, you know, you get taught something and you've got to repeat it, and especially with French when you've got to repeat it back. That, that is always my downfall. If I have to repeat something back, it's going to be right, wrong. Um, but uh, what is a fouet? A fouet is a small bread-like uh, uh, bread cooked in, uh, in a wood-fired oven uh, 99.9% of the time. Uh, it's a very thin dough. Uh, it's much like a Lebanese bread or a pita bread. When it's, when it's, when it's cooked, it, it, it gets really big. It cooks in a minute and a half, just like a pizza. Um, and it was invented in the 17th century, or so poetically and romantic, the French like to think, uh, by the, uh, the bakers to test their ovens. They'd throw a small piece of uh, dough in there and see how it reacted before they took all the embers out. Uh, 
And one day somebody threw a very flat piece of bread in there and they noticed it, that it blew up like a little balloon. And there, from there was born the Fouet. We know that in France was France colonized and France also had a lot of visits from the Arabs, from the Turkish, from, from the Indians. And they all have uh, something very similar to what you call the Fouet today. Are there other names for, for a Fouet? A Fouet can also be called a Fouas. Okay. A Fouas, uh, there's a bit of controversy on that, but it makes a lot of sense. Fouas, de Fouco, Latin, which means fire. And it means something cooked in a fire, uh, in front of a fire. Uh, but the consensus is fouet. And fouas, normalement, is something that is has a lot of uh, white bread in it. And it's uh, usually, um, uh, it's not savoury, it's usually sweet. Made with milk and not water. How did you get into making um, these flatbreads? Well, where I live, which is in, uh, in uh, Gênes Val de Loire, I live not long, not far from a flour mill. Mr. Loriot, who, who is the, the owner of the flour mill, he's been doing this for 25 years, selling fouet on, uh, with, 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 a, with a truck or with a, with a, with a, a trailer, with an oven in there. And uh, they were looking for people who knew how to, how to work a wood-fired oven. You just don't wake up in the morning and know how to work a wood-fired oven, especially when there's so many different ones. Uh, and I, I answered to the, to the, to the call for four and a half years ago now and been doing that ever since. And I love it. How many of these have you, do you think you've made? Oh, uh, at least half a million. Half a million. Well, you, I, I do about 130 parties a, a year with an average of 1,500 every time. Multiply that by four, you'll get a fair few foyer out of there. Yeah, it's just the way I work. I like to, I like what I know what I'm doing and know how to do it perfectly. The idea to make a good foyer is that the thickness has to be right. And since you're rolling out more than four kilos of uh, of dough at a time, it works out to about a meter and a half by a meter. It has to be all the same thickness for for it to all be useful. So I like to get it all right is it something that's made at home by the french in the south uh, in the in the south it's a southwest right it's more of a west west western yeah so did the french would the french be making it at home or is it something that they go out for usually well uh, in france there were before there were bakers there used to be communal ovens where you'd go and, and cook your oven and well there are bakers there was a baker who'd accommodate your dough it wasn't usually him that made the day for you, even though he'd make some for the, for the community. Um, but without a wood-fired oven at home, it's very difficult to make a foie, unless you have a very, very hot oven at 350 to 400 degrees and uh, a good stone to put the foie on. What is actually in the foie when you make it? Like it is, uh, it's flour? Flour, water, salt and yeast. That's it. And does it have to sit overnight? No. It, it takes about. It needs about two hours. Needs about two hours of uh, of, of rising, uh, of proofing. Uh, after that, the time it's I put the dough in my truck and I go to where I'm going. Sometimes an hour and a half distance. It has time to, to grow. Then when I get when I get there, that's when I roll it all out in front of the customer. We don't do that at work. I like we like to do that in front of the customer because it's 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 nice to see. And there it sits another half hour. The time that my oven heats up. 
which takes usually an hour and a half. And then we stay three hours uh, at the party or whatever it may be to serve the people. Right. So now you actually do have a a truck that has a wood-fired oven on it then? Yes. All our trucks are wood-fired ovens. All of them. Amazing. I've got to get my head around this. Are you? Do you light the fire when you get to the event or do you light the fire before you leave? And does that mean that you're travelling up the highway with a fire? Yeah. How does that work? You can't <laughs> travel with a fire because just practically it will go out because you have to close whatever you've got your, your fire in. Otherwise, all your embers just fly out the, the, the truck. And since it's closed, it's not getting any oxygen, so it'll stifle. It'll go out. Okay. Uh, when I get uh, when I get there, I put my wood in, I light her up. It takes uh, an hour and a half, depending on the size of the oven I've got. Sometimes two hours if I've got the, the big oven. Uh, sometimes only forty five minutes if I've got the very small oven. So an average of about an hour, an hour and a half to heat it up. In the meantime, I'm rolling out my my pastry. In the meantime, the customers are doing what they're doing, and then after two hours, I serve them. I serve them to eat. Do you actually make things in the wood-fired oven to serve with the fui? No, it's just for the fui. I have got one thing that I heat in the oven, which is a rio, which is a lard that they eat here, uh, pork. Uh, that I heat and roast in the oven because it gives it that nice woody flavour. Mm, I can imagine. And so what else, yes, what else do you have uh, when you to put into this, uh, this fui? Okay, traditionally the fui has pulled pork, rio, the mojette, which is the white bean, uh, the beurre persillé, which is the same butter they put in the escargot, butter and uh, and parsley and garlic. Salted butter, garlic. It's like our it's like our garlic bread, if you like. Only just add a bit of uh, parsley to it. It's the same thing. Uh, right, you've got uh, chocolate spread, Nutella, if you like. Uh, Caramel beurre salé, which is salted caramel made from that we make ourselves. Um, you can put anything in a fouet. Those are the main ingredients, which is from the region. And after that, anything you want to put in the fouet is okay. Anything. Have you become the master of the wood-fired oven then now? I feel very comfortable in front of just about any wood-fired oven. At first, it wasn't easy to go from one oven to another, but then you start understanding how the heat's translate each oven is higher or lower uh, larger or narrower the, the the entry may be smaller or larger which means it gets more oxygen more air more cold uh, each oven has its way of working um, and yeah I love I love discovering a new oven it's a, it's always a challenge in Australia now people have uh, wood-fired ovens in their backyards in America there's a big huge craze with the uh, smoking you know it's, it used to be just in certain states but now everywhere wants to ha- everybody wants to have smokers and smoke their own um, meats and things like that at home is this something that is happening in France people do build wood fired ovens and I've noticed that a lot here uh, they build big wood fired ovens which is always a big mistake why is that because you, you you spend an hour and a half heating an oven that you're going to cook two pizzas in in exactly three minutes uh, you're using a lot of wood you're, and it's just a waste of space and, and get it build an oven where you can cook at the very most two pizzas in and if you can build an oven and you only cook one even better borders and everything's opening up now tourists especially Americans now can come to France if we want to go and have a fui and the best one where should we go to do that well you should come to our restaurant already at the Aubergade de Gênes. Uh, but any, just about any place in the strict 
30-kilometer area around Saumur will make you excellent sweat because they all know how to make them properly. Then, aside from knowing how to make a sweat, it's the flour that counts. Why? What's so important about the flour? Well, most people will make a foie with, with your white, very, very much processed flour, which is a T45 here or a T55. Uh, in Australia, they, they grade their flour by protein um, quantity. Here in France, they grade it by the amount of ash that's left when you burn 100 grams of it. And that amount of ash that's left, it tells you how, how complete your your flour is so a t45 which is your very white flour compared to a t150 which is like a very full grainy brown flour uh very not processed uh, processed as much and we use a t80 which is a semi-complete which is a semi-complete flour and so what's that going to do in the difference it, it'll change the way you work it your t80 will be more elastic than a t45 because of much more gluten and protein that it has in it that's what reacts with your yeast which then becomes a semi-bacteria uh but your a t80 will mean it takes a bit more water and the flavor is a lot tastier in the mouth it's not that bland you don't have to put as much salt in a t80 that you would in a t45 to get to, to bring out the taste. We talked about terroir with uh, Preston Moore when we were talking about the wines in Burgundy and other areas, etc. And there's a lot of the French talk about terroir when there's like wine and food. Do you think then with the ingredients that go into the, is there is there something about where the flour is coming from? Well, there are, there, there's a lot of grain, wheat grown in the area, a lot of wheat alongside all the vineyards as well. So has it got a report between one of the others? Yeah, we, we could say it has. I doubt it. I doubt it because, uh, well, every bread maker, every baker I know loves his wine, so maybe that's uh, something. There are flatbeds all around the world that people know, but very few people know of the food. Why is this? That's a mystery. I have peop- I've done parties not more than 50 kilometres from where we always have parties and people have no clue. It's born and bred in the area. It's just a very niche sort of uh, thing, but everyone that's tried them without fail has absolutely adored them because it's so... It's so you, you're eating, it's a finger food. It's not something you eat sitting down. Uh, you can, of course, but it's not. You, you, fill, you fill your ingredients up there at the table where you pick up your foie and you eat it while you're talking to people, and that's what people love about it. You're actually part of the Aussies in France Facebook group, which is how we met. You have one of those fabulous jobs of being a moderator on there. How do you find the time to do a, a Facebook group like that, which is so large? Well, luckily I'm not alone. There are another five or six or maybe seven talented uh, admin that uh, take up the slack when I'm not there and I do the same for them. Uh, we all have different times. I stop work sometimes at 2 in the morning. They're all sleeping and I can moderate that time for all the people that are, especially Saturday nights, get quite uh, quite amazing when the people have a drink and uh, get on Facebook. What is it about France and uh, Aussies coming here? Well, Aussies coming in France is, is always, has always been surprising for me because it's not something that I grew up think, thinking of going to France or anyone that I knew, for that matter, who wanted to go live in France. I'm like, why, is the first question. Uh, I had a good reason. And I think all you, I think you come here all for the love of, because you've visited, all for love, all for work. 
Vince, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for um, telling us all about the Fui. Now, if you can just tell me again the restaurant, uh, what was the name and where is it again? I will put all the details in the show description um, for people, but just tell me again. I work at the Moulin de Sarre, which is the mill at Sarre. Sarre is uh, the, the place. And the restaurant is in the, is in the flour mill. Uh, it's open four days a week. I should have uh, started at the beginning when I couldn't pronounce it correctly that we should have had a drinking game, I think, uh, for all the times that I pronounced it incorrectly. Um, but maybe we can do that um, upon listening. Uh, Vince, could you thank you so much for joining us uh, on Fabulously Delicious? You taught us something new and about French food. I'm sure that many people didn't know and I'm sure you'll have lots of new visitors uh, after listening, people listening to this podcast and wanting to come to France. Vince, thank you very much for joining us on Fabulously Delicious. Well, thank you, Andrew. It's a pleasure as always and I look forward to your other car, but your, your other programs. They're fabulous. Thank you very much. Well, we've all learned something new today about French bread, I hope. Who knew that France had its own tradition of making flatbreads? It's not all about the baguette. Thanks for joining me on Fabulously Delicious today. If you like this episode, then please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. If you're an Apple subscriber, then please leave a review. A five-star one would be nice. Nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Oh, and share the podcast around with your friends and family that are into food, or even the ones that aren't, or the ones that are into France, or even the ones that aren't. If you'd like to support the making of Fabulously Delicious, then you can do so by buying me a croissant via the Buy Me A Coffee website. Or you can become a Patreon member and support on a continual basis. Any help is appreciated so that I can bring more fabulous people to Fabulously Delicious. Oh, and if you're planning your next trip to France, then why not book in a one-hour Zoom call with me so that I can help you plan a fabulous trip. You can do that via the Buy Me A Coffee link in the show notes for this episode or by checking out my website, andrewpriorfabulously.com. In 2022, you will hopefully be able to come join me in person for some fabulous cooking classes, as well as some small group tours of France. I'm Andrew Pryor, and my motto in life is, whatever you do, do it fabulously. So why not join me every week here on Fabulously Delicious, the podcast. Abiento and bon app. Hello, and welcome to Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo, and for each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book, and together, we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. Our ninth season is coming this fall. Tune in to hear from some of the all-time great authors, Charles Dickens, Jules Verne, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and more. Subscribe to Novel Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts.